everyone, I'm Brandon Odo. And I'm Brian Bowling. And this is Critical Care Scenarios, the podcast where we use clinical cases, narrative storytelling, and expert guests to unpack how critical care is practiced in the real world. All right, welcome back, everyone. Brandon O back with Brian Bowling. Hey, everybody. And we're going to revisit a topic we've touched on a couple of times now, but I think is not only so important that it bears revisiting, but I think, it, I mean, this is the definition of a multidisciplinary issue. And I think that means it really benefits from having a few different perspectives on it. What we're looking at is is mobility and rehab and kind of general liberation in the ICU, trying to get these critically ill patients, not just alive, but, but back to normal and kind of back to life. And we've talked to Dale Needham about this. We talked to Kali Dayton, kind of different perspectives on some different cultures and approaches for, you know, keeping patients awake, getting them moving. But I think the perspective we haven't had yet is the the true therapy perspective, um, the one taken by our skilled therapists such as PT. So we have Heidi Engel here with us, uh, a physical therapist of uh, 35 years now. She's worked in any number of different acute care contexts. She's over at the UCSF Medical Center now, um, does a lot of research in this area, uh, and is a, a founding member also of the SCCM ICU Liberation Campaign, which is the kind of tireless work SCCM has been doing in this exact area for a number of years now. Uh, so Heidi, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me here. Absolutely. And Brian is going to take us through um, a little bit of a case, and we'll sort of see how you do what you do. So we're going to go through, a, we'll call it a simple case. I don't know how simple it really is, but uh, nothing tricky. And along the way, we'll talk about kind of your perspective on mobility, and not just mobility, but we'll just call it ICU rehabilitation in general, okay? So we're going to start off with, you have a, a 59-year-old gentleman uh, who's in the ICU. He was admitted with COVID pneumonia. Um he was unvaccinated and uh, he has a pretty bad case. He was intubated pretty quickly, developed ARDS and septic shock related to this. Uh, he initially did very poorly. It required some proning and chemical paralysis. So now we're at ICU day three. Um, he is off his chemical paralysis, but has obviously been um, very sick. He's um, in the ICU bed. At what point does rehab, and, and I'm use that term broadly, and we'll kind of dive into that in a second, but what at what point does rehab services start to get involved with a patient like this? So for us, we will start to get involved when his paralytics have cleared his system, obviously, and uh, we're not proning him anymore. Uh, so at UCSF, we have a proning team that consists of nursing and respiratory therapy staff. It doesn't typically include physical therapy staff unless there's something very tricky about the positioning of the patient. Uh, that's due to the number of times a day that the person needs to be repositioned, and we can't be there for all of those times a day. So we might as well really train the nurses and the respiratory therapists to do it all themselves. Um, we wait until the patient's sedation can be turned off, which hopefully for this patient would be within a day or two after the paralytics came off. And for our institution, we really like to have the patient beginning to tolerate switching the ventilator from assist control modes to a pressure support mode to make the, the work of breathing more comfortable when the patient is starting to wake up and move. Okay. So prior to that, this is a situation of if I were to call you and say, I want to consult you, you would say, well, call us back when X, Y, and Z uh, is met. I don't typically. So my vision for ICU early mobility when we started our program at UCSF 12 years ago was that the physical therapist needed to become an embedded member of the ICU team. 
And therefore, they weren't someone that we consulted and we came in from the floor and checked in on an ICU patient with the consult order in hand and and then left again. It seems that an ICU patient changes very quickly throughout the day and from day to day. And so the only way to catch the sweet spot or the ideal window of time for when the patient is awake and the patient doesn't have a procedure and the nurses are available or the respiratory therapists are available, there are so many ducks to line up. There are so many circumstances to to prepare this person to be awake and mobile that the only way the physical therapist can genuinely accomplish it to the right extent is if they are living in the ICU. So therapist has to kind of be a, a team member who's floating around consulting grounding, observing each of the patients. And so what I would tell you is, okay, I see you've just taken the paralytics office, this patient. It looks like he's starting to come around. looks like he's doing better. And it seems like perhaps tomorrow we could get started. And I will typically have that conversation with the nurse and the respiratory therapist. Do you think we could look at this tomorrow? And they will give me their input and then we'll decide if we'll reconvene at the bedside tomorrow. Okay. So you, you're sort of assigned and embedded, like you said, in the unit, uh, in the same way that a respiratory therapist would be. Yes. Okay. Now, if the patient was, uh, not quite at the point you described, like maybe they were not paralyzed, but not quite able to tolerate pressure support yet, something like that. Is there some kind of lower level of work you could do with them? Or is it kind of not even worth you getting too involved until they're at a certain point? It depends on if, I think I can help. So can I help them improve their respiratory mechanics? We're pretty quick at UCSF to switch the patients to pressure support. And so typically if the patient is staying on assist control modes of ventilation, it's because the the ARDS is still um, requiring super low tidal volumes and the patient is is still having a really low PF ratio. And so typically I'm going to stress them out more than I'm perhaps going to help them. Um, But if I think I could help this patient at this early, early point in time, uh, wake up more, understand reality more, learn to tolerate the ET tube. And this is a very big, very big part of my job because I think one of the greatest barriers and research has proven this out to our being able to effectively mobilize patients early enough in the game that it's a true preventative medical strategy is that you go to the bedside and you look at the patient and the nurse says, well, I tried to lighten the sedation, but they became, you know, fairly agitated and tachypnic and tachycardic. Their blood pressure started to go up and this happens especially with the COVID population. Um, and, and therefore, uh, we felt like, no, they're not ready to do anything. We turn the sedation back on. And very often, what you're doing is sort of setting up a vicious cycle because what's happening for the, for the patient internally is they've been hallucinating. They think they're being held captive somewhere. They don't understand at all what's going on. All they know is that they can't breathe. They're choking uh, people are trying to poke things into them and hold them down and they're they're fighting it or they're very scared. And one of our very first early jobs for this gentleman that you describe is going to have to be to teach him to adapt to the sensation of the ventilator tubing in his throat. And, and that's a hurdle we have to get him past. And the sooner we can get him past it, the more effective the the rehabilitation interventions are going to become, and the more we will prevent disability for him down the road. So there's an there's a messy, ugly, very initial process whereby I go in, the sedation is off, the respiratory therapist is there to increase the, the support on the ventilator as needed for this particular patient and decrease the work of breathing, try to help calm their sense of feeling completely dyspneic, even when their SATs and their blood gases are good, they're always going to still feel in their brain dyspneic because how much the ventilator does the opposite of natural breathing. It's a very unnatural feeling. 
we have to talk them through that. And then we have to help them understand. And when I say them, I mean the patient, uh, but often the nurse as well, that the initial, you know, messy part where the patient feels very uncomfortable and has the vital signs to reflect that discomfort. We have to just kind of help talk them through that. We have to nurse them through it and give them as much support as we can, give them as much explanation as we can. And this is a point where if I can put a family member's voice right next to that patient's ear and explain to the family member, let them know they're safe, let them know they're okay, let them know we're, yes, we're sorry the tube has to be there and it's very uncomfortable. But if we can help get you sitting up, the breathing will become more comfortable not for the first couple of minutes. For the first couple of minutes, you'll feel like you're going to fall on the floor and you're still not getting enough air. But if you let us channel you back over that hump, you will calm down, you will breathe better, and this will help move you forward. How, uh, you mentioned you know, working with not just the patients, but with the staff. How much of what you do in general do you think is staff education? So I don't know if it's education or if it's diplomatic conversation or, but there's, there's a lot we have to discuss regarding sedation. Uh, and there's a lot of coordinating. We, we have an amazing respiratory therapy team. And so there's a lot of coordinating with the respiratory therapists to get their input on what they think is, is limiting this patient's progress to get off the ventilator. And can we do something to fix it? How could we, ideally reset the ventilator. And this is so key. How can we ideally reset the ventilator during activity to help this patient feel more comfortable with their breathing and tolerate the mobility? How can we take out the work of breathing? Do we need to increase the pressure support? Um, do we need to go up on the FiO2? Do we perhaps need to switch the patient? Like today's the first day we're going to get the patient up. They've been on assist control. We've trialed them on a little bit of pressure support the pressure support has tended to tire them out. Well, for the mobility practice, which thing do we want to do? Do we want to leave them on assist control and still sit them up? And sometimes with some patients, yes, that's what we want to do. At other times for other patients, the respiratory therapist and I will talk to each other and talk through the case and say, no, maybe what we really should do is go ahead and switch them to pressure support, give them some extra pressure support, and but let them, you know, initiate every breath on their own, and that might work better for this patient. With the nurses, it's a lot about discussing sedation. Uh, very, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding of what the definition of a spontaneous awakening trial is, and this is really the part of the A to F bundle that that is is routinely misunderstood, I think. And what I see it interpreted as often is it's a sedation awakening trial. Therefore, we turn off the sedation for 15, 20, 30 minutes, and that's a box we check. And after the patient has that box checked and has gone through about 30 minutes that way, then we compassionately, as what I often hear nurses describe to me, it's compassionate to go back in and turn the sedation back on, even if the patient isn't looking as if they need the sedation because they're becoming hemodynamically unstable or not breathing well or becoming super agitated. Um, and so therein lies the educational piece in that, well, the probe falls off. If the patient did really well uh, and we put them back in bed or we've just mobilized them, uh, or even if we haven't mobilized them, but the propofol has been off for 20 or 30 minutes and the patient still looks good, it's actually not the compassionate thing to do to go back in and turn it back on again. But a lot of people think it's a trial, meaning you just do it for a little while and then you turn it back on as opposed to leave it off. And let the patient prove to you they actually need that drug for some reason. Yeah, I think that's really good. So one thing I was thinking during your your whole little bit there, what you were talking about is how great it is in I you know I've been in healthcare in one way or another for twenty years. Uh, I was a tech, I was a, a bedside nurse, and now I'm a nurse practitioner. Uh, and in all that time, I can tell you. The, the really sweet spot where things are really working great is when you have a team of professionals who are working at the top of their expertise. 
Uh, you know, when I have a respiratory therapist who I ask questions like, you know, well, give me your input. What do you think here? And they tell me, oh, man, I think we should ch- make this change and that change. And I think we should do this. You know, when I have a nurse who really gets what you're talking about, about the sedation and, and what's compassionate and, and, and everyone is working at a level where they're really applying their knowledge and skill and not just, like you said, checking a box. That's when it really works well. Um, and I just, you know, if I could have that every day, it'd be fantastic. Yeah. And that's, that's what draws us to critical care, right? Is that there's this amazing, you know, collaborative decision-making, clinical reasoning, judgment, um, very super observant care that we need to provide each patient and each patient has some very individual stories and individual needs. So while we need frameworks and checklists to make sure we aren't forgetting or missing anything, there is a, gr- a great deal of creativity and, and teamwork that is, is required to bring the patient to the next step. I think the other big educational piece that I uh, end up providing often or interacting with people over is it, out of bed is important. So out of bed is more important than bed exercises. Uh, and and we have now established a culture of that in, in our ICU so that it doesn't seem unusual. But now in this era of COVID, we have frequent traveler nurses or nurses coming from other parts of the country. And when they see me come to the bedside, they're now at least accustomed to seeing a physical therapist in the ICU. That part isn't new for them. But what is new for them is the definition of ICU physical therapy as being out of bed and mobile and on your feet and having the family be part of the helping process for that mobility. That part tends to be something eye-opening and new to to nurses who haven't been a culture to that from other places is what I've observed. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. Um it's int- it, it is interesting to see, like you said, when people come from different areas, uh, what they bring with them. Uh, and I've had that experience both ways, where I've had people who come from a place that's much more um, of a mobility, active culture than maybe where we have, uh, and, and they help change things for the better. So, Yes, and, and, and I find there are a lot of questions uh, that folks ask me about what bed exercises are you choosing? What exercises in the bed? What bed bicycle device uh, you know, do you want to attach to the bed so the patient can lie in bed uh, pedaling? And I typically say I, I don't have any special bed exercises or bed cycling devices I want to use because that's not the point of, of ICU rehab. The point is to help the person be sitting upright, which is a better position for breathing, uh, sitting upright or out of bed or on their feet because the, the, the often ignored skeletal muscle system is a very crucial system. And I often explain to family members and to patients you know, if I want your lungs to function better, which does seem to be part of the point of why we're here trying to help this person get off the ventilator, if I really want your heart and lungs to function better, I do not have you sit in bed and do a breathing exercise or pump your ankles back and forth. I actually have you use your legs because for all of our physiology, no matter if we're super healthy, athletic, or if we are incredibly critically ill, The physiology works in such a way that it is through your giant leg muscles and the use of your giant leg muscles that you improve your cardiopulmonary system, right? You want to be a good athlete with really well-working lungs and heart. You go out and run up and down a hill. You don't sit around trying a breathing exercise. So we're still asking the same thing. We want the heart and lungs to improve, but we need to communicate with them through this vast amount of body mass. 40% of your lean body mass is skeletal muscle, um, communicating to your lungs and heart that, Hey, we need that. At the same time, we want to preserve your brain and your brain needs to problem solve how to get out of bed and tolerate a ventilator tubing at the same time, how to learn to breathe in sync with a ventilator, how to be able to sit outside of the bed and feel safe, how to be able to sit outside of the bed and, and find out from your family member, what's happening at home. How's your pet dog doing? These are all things that require your brain in a way that we forget about when we're healthy, but when you're critically ill and attached to all this equipment in the ICU, that's that's actually profound, powerful medicine. Yeah, that's a good point. I had not really thought, I'm very big on patients need to be up and out of bed, uh, moving around, walking in the hallway, stuff like that. 
Uh, I had not thought of it from a neuro perspective, other than obviously uh, I'm a big proponent of up out of bed, shades up, lights on during the day uh, to prevent delirium sort of thing. Um, but I had not thought of the um, the um, the neuro exercises, basically, of like you said, problem solving. How do I move? Uh, how do I get up out of bed? How do I move to the chair? Uh, how do I have a conversation with my family? Um, or thinking about my life and my dog and, and whatever else like that. That's very interesting. We know that the things that are most troubling to ICU patients, one, they feel thirsty. Two, they feel traumatized and afraid. Uh, three, they, they, they can't communicate. And four, they always feel like they're not getting enough air. They can't breathe because the mechanics of being on a ventilator or having even high flow oxygen are such the opposite of normal breathing. It gives their brain the message that something's really wrong with your breathing, which then gets interpreted cognitively as I'm, I'm, I'm not getting enough air. I'm, I'm dyspneic. Um, and, and so Learning to tolerate all of that and adapt to everything in the ICU um, is a big challenge for the cognitive capabilities, but also for the, the cognitive preservation of the, of the patient. Regarding the lights, I um, was a patient for a SIMS lab for the American Delirium Society once. I was a delirious patient in the ICU, and I spent the entire day lying in an ICU bed, uh, staring at the ceiling. And to uh, improve my delirium, I noticed that they kept the fluorescent lights on, which actually I found so noxious. And it taught me such a lesson because I thought, wow, if I'm an ICU patient and I'm having to stare at fluorescent lights, this is really going to make me more delirious and agitated. Um, so my strategy for uh, delirium reduction is I often am going in and turning off. And we know this from our neuro patients. Fluorescent lights are actually overstimulating and, and noxious to a, a troubled in-framed brain. So I do my best to bring in natural light and really dim the fluorescent lights. Yeah, that's a good that's a good point. You're talking about direct fluorescent lights, right? Yes. Yeah. So our ICU rooms have a big bright overhead light like that, but most of the lighting comes from uh, sort of recessed lighting around the room, like sconces and backlit uh stuff over, over pictures on the walls and stuff like that. So, uh, but that's a good point, right? If you're talking like an old school where you just have that typical institutional fluorescent lighting, every other tile. Um, yeah, I could see how that would be really obnoxious. And, and I've entered many ICU rooms where the nurse, again, trying to do the right and compassionate thing by the patient has been taught, turn on the lights. It's daytime. Right. We want the, the brain normalized and they've got every bright fluorescent light in the room on because this patient is hypoactive delirious. Uh, and I go in and turn those off and put on your sconcing lights that you're talking about. And, and the patient, it's amazing. They'll open their eyes because I would close my eyes too and not interact very much if I had a fluorescent light staring in my eye. So I think part of what we're really always trying to do is uh, the, the Wes Ely routine, right? What he keeps going over in his his new book of every deep drawn breath let's not forget the person inside beneath all this equipment we've attached to them let's let's reach into the person let's let's bring their humanity into the care that we're doing and you know movement is something your body is is attuned to doing from the moment you are created we are never not in motion as part of being alive and therefore being sedated and completely inert for days, weeks, uh, is, is a completely unnatural thing for us as humans. Let's talk a little bit about, we've, we've sort of said, use this term rehab services, rehab team, whatever. Uh, but we know that that's actually lots of different people, lots of different specialties. You've already mentioned, um, respiratory therapy, uh, and their role that they can play. Um, we've sort of been talking, although I don't think we've said it's explicitly about PT. Um, but explain if you could, and I don't mean to put you on the spot speaking for every profession, but what's the difference really between PT and OT and anybody else that may be involved in what we would call um, rehab or therapy or um, I don't know what else the other terms would be? 
So what I love about the occupational therapists is we really complement and overlap, meaning some of the things I might do with the patient, such as talk to them about, you know, combing their hair and doing basic ADL skills and interacting with their family and trying to give them cognitive tasks to complete. Those would often be considered occupational therapy types of tasks. Occupational therapists are really there for the cognition, for the the skill sets of daily living, for, for challenging the person and looking at their psychological aspects of their care. But I do that as well. And then my role as a physical therapist is very often, you know, optimize the neuromuscular system, optimize the musculoskeletal system, realizing that, that I'm, I'm tapping into those systems of the body as a way to improve the cardiopulmonary and cognitive parts of this person, and then bringing all of it together to really reach into the whole person and the humanity of the person. So I might be more focused on pure strength training, like your personal trainer, your athletic trainer in the ICU. Um, but I'll still add in some of those other elements because this is a whole person I'm interacting with. And my occupational therapists might come in and they might be more specifically focused on uh, having the person write down who they are uh, in terms of where do you live and what do you like to do and what kinds of activities can we give you to do while you are sitting in the chair? Um, what kinds of things can we interest you in? I mean, we've had occupational therapists go into our COVID ICU and get a ventilated patient up out of bed and find out that she really loves knitting and find her some yarn and find her some knitting needles and, and, and give her a knitting project to do. So we have pictures of this lovely woman sitting on the ventilator, uh, knitting, a whatever she was knitting. So those are the types of tasks that occupational therapists will be more focused on. And, and I would tend to be more focused on the real physical training. So I would go into that same patient and put her knitting aside and have her doing some squats on the ventilator as an example. One thing I talk about often when I teach within my own profession is there is a, a, a habit that physical and occupational therapists can fall into of trying to see all the patients together. So the occupational therapist and the physical therapist go into the room at the same time and spend all their time both at the same time together with the one patient. And I try to discourage uh, my rehab colleagues from operating in this way because I think then we are underutilizing professional skills. And I think we are shortchanging our patients as a whole by not allowing them to have separate physical and occupational therapy sessions. Interesting. That's a good, that's a good point. Um, I would have thought grouping it all together might be better to prevent them from being overtired, but I do see what you're saying that you're sort of shortchanging them. You're, you're, you're getting half of me instead of all of my attention today. Well, not only that, but in my experience, one of us is actually behaving as kind of a a nursing assistant or mobility tech. So Mm. I can't really instruct a patient in squats at the same time that the occupational therapist is is giving them a knitting project, for example, right? So we're going to end up choosing one or the other. And then the OT is probably maybe holding on to the vent equipment and the A-line and some of the other tubing on the patient while I'm instructing them in the squats. And therefore, the occupational therapist's professional skills aren't being utilized. At that point, the occupational therapist is really acting like mobility tech. So what we have done is we've we've trained mobility techs to do that part of the work um, because you do need someone managing the lines. I, I also utilize students as much as I can. I, I utilize family members whenever I can. But for the unskilled tasks of, you know, make sure we don't pull out this A-line uh, I don't need someone with an advanced degree to help me do that. And, and I think maybe there's another patient down the hall that actually needs your professional skills more. I also, there's, there's often been this assumption that, well, if we do separate physical therapy and occupational therapy sessions, you're going to overtire the patient. And I've never seen that happen. And if it, if, if the patient is that, you know, low level in, in energy and endurance, then what if one of us saw them today and the other one of us saw the patient tomorrow and that frees you up to see someone else down the hall. So 
I still have yet to find good reasons 95% of the time for the OT and the, and the PT to be in the same room together at the same time. It works beautifully. If the occupational therapist can go in, get my COVID ventilated gentleman out of bed, set him up in a chair, have his family sit in front of him and talking to him about what's going on at home. And then I can come back later, bring him through some exercises, uh, maybe help him back to bed. Or if not that, someone else, will, the nurse will help him back to bed and I can come later in the afternoon and get him up and focus on the squats. Um, you know, we don't spend so much time exerting these patients so strenuously that they can't often handle being seen both morning and afternoon, one of us in the morning and one of us in the afternoon. All right, let's get back to our case a little bit here. So our gentleman is intubated. His sedation is off, on, off, on. Uh, but his paralytics have been off now for a few days. So you're going to go in and, and see this guy. How do you start to assess him, evaluate him, and make a plan for him? So first I'm going to do CAM ICU and, and RAS score and determine if he's delirious or not. And I'm willing to bet it's not overstepping it too much that even with his sedation off with everything that he's been through, he's probably like RAS minus two, RAS minus three, maybe RAS minus one, but he's probably still pretty lethargic, sleepy, not comprehending everything really well. Um, and so now what I'm going to do is try to start waking him up. So I'm going to tell him why I'm there. I'm going to introduce myself. I'm going to explain to him what the ventilator tubing is there for and how important it is that he don't touch the ventilator tubing. I'm then going to say, look, I'm going to start uh, stretching and moving your legs a little bit. So I have what I've often described as sort of my own individual version of sternal rub. When you know that the neurologists, when they go in and they really want to wake up someone who's RAS minus three or RAS minus four, and they start rubbing on their sternum, I find that incredibly invasive and, and noxious. What I typically do is start doing a pretty decent uh, gastroc and hamstring stretch. So I'm now doing that passive range of motion and bed exercises. That's where we're starting from. Um, and that typically will wake a person up pretty quickly. Then what I do is if I, I, now I'm trying to assess, do I have their brain here with us? Is their brain can, and is their brain connected to their legs or not? And where was this person before they came into the hospital? Were they someone who went for a run every day and uh, worked out at the gym and had a job where they were physically moving things? Or are they someone who really is very sedentary um, doesn't like exercise, you know, that, that counts a lot about how well I can get skin in the game with this patient in terms of what I'd like to accomplish with their, their strengthening and their physiologic optimization. So now I'm asking them to bend their knee and do they follow the command and how vigorously they do that and how fast is the neuromuscular connection they demonstrate in their legs. And then I'm asking them to push their legs very hard against me and straighten their leg out. And now I'm assessing how strong is their leg. And again, how well connected is their brain to their leg? And then I'm looking at the monitor and seeing how that looks. Are they getting tachycardic? And I'm looking at the ventilator. Are they getting tachypnic? And what kind of tidal volumes are they pulling? And I'm looking at the respiratory therapist to see what they think. And then I'm seeing, does the patient need suctioning? And if all this goes really well, if the patient demonstrates good capability of moving their leg upon request, if they demonstrate good strength in their legs, and especially if they have that lovely baseline function of they were some, some version of athletic prior to becoming sick, then we've got a lot to work with. So now I'll tell them, okay, I'm going to sit you up on the side of the bed. Please don't touch the tubing. We're going to bring all of the equipment, and this is this is really key because arranging the equipment is one of the, the longest, most arduous parts of the process. We are now going to bring all the lines and all the equipment around to the side of the bed of the ventilator, and we're going to make sure it's all slack in the direction of where we want the patient to go. So if we're thinking we're going to help this patient get into a chair, we are now bringing all the equipment around. We're creating all the lines on slack, and this is where your mobility tech comes in very handy because we train... We train someone who wants to go to physical therapy school how to do this. And they 
untangle all the lines. We bring the equipment around to the same side as the ventilator. It's all slack in the, in the direction of where this patient is going to go. And now we start. So now I'm going to have the patient sit on the edge of the bed for a long time. And I'm going to observe, do they have head control? Do they have trunk control? How labored is their breathing? What are their vital signs looking like? Are they getting orthostatic? How alert are they? And I need all those boxes to be checked good, affirmative, great. They have trunk control. They have head control. Uh, they're not profoundly delirious. The family's there and the family is very appropriate and interactive with the patient. Um, and everyone looks very safe. Ventilator, good tidal volumes. Uh, the person is now on pressure support ventilation and initiating every breath. Uh, we've suctioned them a few times. They've learned to adapt to the ventilator tubing, so they're not trying to perpetually yank it out. We need to keep reminding them of that, but it's okay. Uh, and now what I will often do is I will often put a, either a really big walker or a really big um, mobility device in front of the patient and ask to see if they can stand up. And at this stage of the game, it is quite likely that standing might be an exhaustive enough exercise for the person that we won't actually go to the chair. We will instead work on standing, sit to standing. We'll change out all the linen while they're up standing. Uh, and then if they're looking like they're starting to become really tired, we will place them back on bed um, on their nest, nice, fresh linen, cleaned back, washed face, combed hair. Uh, family at the bedside talking to them again. And uh, we might try that again later in the afternoon. So are you, you're seeing patients multiple times a day? I mean, I guess if you're embedded in the ICU that you have that luxury that. Typically you... I'm not, but that's where I did that in the morning. Now the occupational therapist can go in and. Oh, okay. Afternoon. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and in the, in the meantime, are you, you, you mentioned before, maybe you're seeing them today and occupational therapy, seeing them tomorrow or whatever. Are you, do you typically see folks every day or? Yes. I mean, the patient you've just described, I would see every day. Okay. And right. what we've tried to do is stagger our schedules a little bit so we can kind of push that into six days, six or seven days a week. Um, so I work every Saturday, for example, I work a Tuesday through Saturday, uh, week. And that means we have at least one person covering the medical surgical ICUs every single Saturday. So one day of the, of the weekend at least is covered, but sometimes on Sundays folks can sneak in there too. Okay. Uh, and now in between what, uh, what's okay for nurses to do, um, or what should nurses be doing? We have a nurse, a lot of nurses who listen, what should nurses be doing Independent of you, I've sometimes have heard nurses say, and I think I used to say this maybe, or, or colleagues when I was a nurse, um, you know, the we're, we're waiting for PT to get them up. Um, what, what's okay for nurses to do, and ha and how's the best way for them to know what's okay given individual patients? Yeah, so again, that's dependent on the individual situation of both the nurse and the patient, and is the family member at the bedside, and how safe do we think this patient is. So, uh, sometimes the nurse will wait for PT to initially get the patient up out of bed. A lot of, a lot of the nurses I work with, they seem to feel very comfortable with at least sitting the patient on the edge of the bed, um, and testing the patient out that way, uh, without me being there or prior to me ever being there. Um, if the patient's exceptionally mobile and, and um, the nurse is, is motivated to do so, getting the patient out of bed, it's fine. Uh, in our cardiac ICU at UCSF, uh, the nurses do an extraordinary amount of, of mobilizing the patients. You know, they, they are the ones primarily um, walking the ECMO patients two or three times a day. Um, and PT is less involved in that because the nurses have trained themselves to do it so well. So it, it really ends up coming down to training and culture and, you know, but hands on deck. I mean, right now, while everyone is so short staffed, it, it's a huge barrier to good mobility happening, I think, because it's a, there's no way to get around. It's a, it, it's a multi hands on deck 
process. You just can't get around it. The equipment requires that. It, the patients require that. There, there is no machine or device we can we can reasonably use. Um, we do have in our in our ICU ceiling track slings uh, that we can use to get patients in and out of chairs, and our nurses uh, seem to really appreciate those to utilize those uh, if if they're afraid the patient you know is going to have buckling knees when they try to stand up or something. Yeah, I think those are, are really nice. We did not have those for most of my bedside nursing career, uh, and it's definitely made a difference. So you you mentioned with without saying the c word, um, we've talked about staffing issues, and that's of course related to COVID. Um, I told Brandon before we got on uh, on Mike, I was debating whether or not to make this guy a COVID patient or not because I feel like while it's very timely, people are almost kind of sick of it, but it has become, uh, like he was saying, it's almost background noise right now that COVID affects so much of, of what we do in the ICU. Um, what about, what about mobility and rehab and stuff? Are there specific challenges that you've noticed related to COVID, whether that's the disease process itself affecting the patients and their ability to rehab or things like this, the, the staffing shortages due to COVID and burnout, uh, any, any new, um, new challenges or things that have always been there that are made worse in the last two years? No, this is the worst experience of my life. And I've been a physical therapist for 35 years. This is just horrible. And the respiratory therapist that I work with, who's incredibly good at, at his job and, um, has also been working with me closely for many years, you know, we looked at each other at the end of last year and said, I just want the flu back. I just want to have a regular like ARDS from the flu. Remember those days? I mean, we're reminiscing about flu ARDS patients because it was so much easier to deal with than COVID ARDS. So there's been lots of increased sedation, a lot more use of paralytics, um, uh, it's exhausting, exhausting work for, because you have to have so much of the PPE on and you're screaming through the PPE to be heard in our rooms. We have negative pressure blower machines. So there's the engine hum in the background, adding to the whole need to scream through your PPE. Um, a lot of our patients were it, with COVID severe ARDS did not speak English. And so you're trying to get a translator on a zoom screen, um, and have that person be able to both hear, you know, us and, and be able to have their voice be heard to the patient. It felt nearly impossible. Um, we would have families on zoom screen in the room and they were, you know, so, so now we're sweating, we're screaming in our PPE, we're carefully watching the patient because the COVID ARDS patients would often suddenly have some decompensation that we were not accustomed to seeing in other types of ARDS. You know, they'd suddenly spike their blood pressure really high, kind of out of nowhere. And you go, Oh, what, what's that? Um, and on top of all of that stress, you'd have, you know, cute little children on a zoom screen trying to talk to grandpa on the ventilator. And, and now we're feeling compassion for the family and we're like crying in our PPE on top of it all. And all of this is taking an extraordinary amount of time. I would finish my first patient of the day after an hour in a room, like rearranging equipment, screaming, trying to get a translator on the zoom screen um, trying to make sure this patient didn't suddenly do some strange decompensation and shouting over the blower and coming out and feel exhausted and go, okay, great. I just saw one patient. <laughs> so it was, yes, there's a lot of unique experience, uh, that came with, with that disease. That's all the negative things I think I just described. And the positive thing is, I was amazed at how once we were able to help patients over that severe initial ICU insult and, and decompensation, 
they got better. They got stronger. They rehabbed really fast. The fun part for me, the physical therapist was when those patients left the ICU and went out to the floor, um, I was almost grateful for all the rehab facilities where I live who were unwilling to take those patients because that meant I was given free license to become a very creative uh, physical therapists trying to make a, a bit of an acute rehab happen inside the confines of a COVID patient room on the floor. And those patients were motivated and they got strong rather quickly, uh, more quickly than we were accustomed to, which was interesting. Um, so that's the one plus side, but no, it's been horrible. And the one thing I've if you can say enjoy in a perverse sort of way, I guess in a relative way, um, the Omicron variant, we are not seeing that the same degrees for the most part of the severe ARDS that I felt like we saw before. It's, it's not non-existent, but it's far less. Sure. Yeah. So uh, it's interesting. You, you know, you, you said uh, allows you to sort of be creative and, and stuff. And I think I thought what a great and probably unique perspective uh, on it. I feel like most of, most of us just sort of see the downside, um, which I certainly appreciate. I was thinking when you were describing working in this room, uh, just the other day, I was in a patient's room, uh, a COVID positive patient. I put an A-line in and then intubated the patient. Um, and I don't know how long I was in there, maybe 30, 45 minutes and came out just dripping. Um, I, I mean, I thought I'm going to have to go change scrubs because uh, now I'm freezing because I'm wearing soak soaking wet scrubs in, in an air conditioned hospital. Um, and, and I thought, and I really didn't do anything all that physical, you know, I mean, I stood there and put an A-line in and then I intubated somebody that's hardly using any muscles. Uh, I'm not getting up patients and moving them around. And, uh, I feel like watching you guys work on a, on a regular day makes me tired. Um, I can't imagine doing it for an hour in all that gear. Oh yeah. And the patients, a lot of them were obese and they, uh, because they had been on paralytics and because they were very delirious with all the sedation and the disease and everything else, um, it was a dependent assist lift. So yeah, I was, you know, I've often said, what other career do people have these days where you are doing a max, you know, your max one rep lift day in and day out, but that is what we end up doing. I mean, we have wonderful, mobility equipment. And that does help to a certain extent, but there's no, again, there's no way getting around needing, needing some manual moving skills to, to help these patients move. Yeah. The sweat would be dripping down my back, down my legs. I would come home at night with a hoarse voice and exhausted. Yeah, I would imagine. Um, so let's get back, let's get back to our guys. He's progressing along, um, we're, we're getting to the point where he's maybe going to come off the ventilator. Uh, but if not, then we're going to have to talk about a trach because um, we're getting, we're getting to that point. What, uh, if anything, can you guys do to sort of help us? We're at that point where we, gosh, we are so close. We might be able to get him off the vent. Is there anything in particular from a rehab standpoint that can help tip that towards, successful extubation versus tracheostomy? Yes, yes, yes. Thank you for asking that question. <laughs> uh, so we have more than once had a patient who the team felt like this, this gentleman is, you know, still really struggling to breathe on the ventilator. We keep trying to do a breathing trial on him and he becomes very tachypnic and his tidal volumes are really low and crappy. He's full of secretions. He's delirious a lot. I think the only way we're really going to give him a shot of, of rehabilitating and, and eventually weaning the vent is to do a tracheotomy and they will talk to the family and they will explain all of that. And they'll have the family consent for the tracheotomy. And then they'll say, okay, but we have to bump it to, you know, we're doing this, let's say on a Thursday or Friday. Okay. We're going to schedule the trach cause it's a tricky one and it has to be done, um, you know, by the OHNS team. And we're going to do that on Monday. And, I love that scenario because I feel like it's throwing down the challenge of, or can you with some intensive rehab, uh, work this patient out all weekend long, and we'll just be able to extubate them on Monday and cancel the trach. And multiple times, uh, 
intensive rehab has worn out and we have simply extubated the person and they have done fine. So what that entails is, again, remembering that we access the cardiopulmonary system through the large musculoskeletal system. That means the big muscles in your legs. And that means the big muscles in your legs have to be working on standing, squats, standing, moving, walking. That's how we get the cardiopulmonary system better. But again, you also get the brain better because the brain is forced to make the legs communicate with it and it with the legs. So you fire up those synapses again. And then we work so carefully with the respiratory therapists who we're, we're suctioning and we're recruiting and we're trying to, we often, I often will ask the patient and explain to the family member, which number on the ventilator represents tidal volumes. And we will say to the patient, okay, see that number. Can you hit 400? Let's see if you can turn that to 400. Take a nice, lovely, deep breath. Um, and people get involved in the game and the feedback really helps. So we're doing pulmonary hygiene. We're doing neuromuscular recruitment. We are doing cognitive awareness, and we are doing uh, just pure exercise of the large skeletal muscles to optimize this person. And, you know, then we tell them, I've told more than one of these folks, here's my plan for you for the weekend. The more time out of bed, the better. And you're going to be training for a marathon. It's going to be exhausting athletic training. However, we are doing that in the service of preventing you from needing a tracheotomy. Are you on board? And so many people are on board. And if we can do it, many, many times we have canceled tracheotomies and th nothing makes me happier. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. That, that would be great. So uh, we're sort of getting to the end of our time here, but I do want to touch on one other thing. We've, we've talked about sort of how nursing can be helpful with this. We've talked about how the different kind of components of rehab, respiratory therapy, physical therapy, occupational therapy, et cetera. Um, what about those of us who are providers? So physicians, uh, nurse practitioners, uh, PAs, what can we do to help with this? Encourage folks to understand that propofol on zero, not, not a little bit of dex, not a little bit of probe just to keep the patient calm or chill or, or, or whatever. I've had a saying for a very long time that, you know, Presidex is not really your Chardonnay at the end of the day. Uh, folks, folks perceive those medications as being, um, compassionate, calming, just takes the edge off. And, and I am asked frequently to mobilize the patient or once the patient's back in bed to put them back on their little bit of Dex or their little bit of propofol, um, because it will help chill them out and no, over time that dripping into someone's body 24 seven actually does harm. They also are not as able to interact well with me, um, and exercise to the intensity that they need to with even a teeny tiny amount of those drugs trickling in them. Now there are exceptions always to all the rules in the ICU, but for the most part, zero is always better. And Nurses don't always feel like the physical therapist telling them that carries a whole lot of weight. But if a nurse practitioner is saying that and if physicians are driving that home more often, um, that helps an extraordinary amount. Or sometimes, you know, I've had a situation where we, we turn the propofol off to mobilize the patient. The patient does great. Maybe the patient needs to go back to bed. They still look great. And the nurse says, okay, now we need to turn the propofol back on. And I'll say why. And they will say to me, well, the physician really wants it on to, to which I will go back to the physician and say, do we really need to turn this back on? And it, nine, again, nine times out of 10, they will say, no, why? And I'll say, well, could you go have a conversation with the nurse? Because that nurse thinks that you want it back on. So I, I think knowing the bundle is one of the greatest things that that the other providers, the doctors and the, and the nurse practitioners can do. But the, the thing with the A to F bundle is it just requires, it's like growing a garden. It requires constant nurturing and pruning and, and replanting. And it, it really requires a lot of cultivation on an ongoing basis. It's a moving target. It's not a, it's not a 
a checklist like we described before. So the more those providers really understand the bundle, how to how to deliver it as an entire bundle, not in not piecemeal, like we did this and then we'll do that. And we got to three elements of the bundle today. That's great. Um, I think that that helps a tremendous amount. Oh, okay. Well, great. Thanks. Um, I think this has been really interesting and very helpful to me. Uh, Brandon, do you have anything else you want to touch on? I, I guess I have a question or a couple questions related to uh, nurse-driven mobility. Um, you know, you are in, I, I think, probably one of the more luxurious models for how to do this, which is a, having a dedicated, skilled therapy team for the ICU. Um, I guess the other extreme is you just don't do any mobility. But the, in the middle, is a common model is where a lot of this is, is done by nursing, and you have protocols and things for that. But they certainly do things a little differently than you would. So let me ask you about a couple things that come up often when you're having nurses um, mobilize patients. Um, One is, you know, very often if we even think about mobilizing patients, the kind of the greatest extent of it will be, you know, oh, can this guy get out of bed to a chair? And I'll take it as assumed that we all think any level of mobility is better than, than none or than less. But how useful do you think it is from a PT perspective for a patient to be sitting in a chair rather than in bed? And let's, to keep it all neutral, we'll say in both cases, let's say they, they got up, maybe they stood. Um, but in one case, they got back into bed, and in one case, they were put into a chair and maybe even reclined in a chair, as they often are. Um, for maybe an hour or two. Do you think that's helpful or is it really just the getting into the chair that's helpful? No, the, um, the chair is really helpful. So particularly for more chronically critically ill patients, uh, they develop what I call ICU bed agoraphobia. Um, they will develop ICU room agoraphobia. So after a while, you know, humans adapt. That is what makes our physiology so amazing is that it's so adaptable. And that means it'll adapt to uh, a negative circumstance, like being horizontal in a gravity eliminated position in a bed for a prolonged period of time. Um, or it will adapt to being upright and moving around. You know, your body only knows what the environment immediately surrounding it provides it. So, very quickly, the human brain and physiology seem adapt to a sensation in a critically ill environment of thinking, okay, I get this. The only place I now live and am safe is in this bed. And I've had multiple patients who have, you know, been fighting for their lives on ventilators and on ECMO for weeks and looking horrible, like they're about to die. And they came from a background of being perhaps very mobile, you know, hiking, mountain climbing, and so forth. And on the first day we get them up out of bed, you can watch the patient have a panic attack and and point to the bed or lunge themselves back at the bed. And, And that's simply because in, in the inner recesses of their brain and their psychology, they now believe that the only place I can be safe and not have my life threatened is if I'm lying in that bed. Um, so we often have to teach the chronically critically ill that you are safe out of the bed. This is, this is one small step. Uh, also chairs, upright chairs, not recliner chairs, but upright chairs require more of the, 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 in, the muscles that run up and down the back of a spine, the ones that hold us up all day long without us even thinking about it. These are, these are muscles that very quickly are inhibited by lying in a bed, both by the stretch on them from the lying in bed position, but also just the compression on them and the lack of utilization. And yet you need those for postural control all day long, and you need them to be the type of muscle that uh, has a lot of endurance to it. So you can't develop endurance in those muscles holding your spine in a vertical position uh, without creating a situation where there's some endurance uh, demand placed upon them. And so that requires, you know, often sitting in a regular high back chair. I also, I, I, I just, I'm sorry, I want to add quickly, Brandon, the, from the beginning of your question, you know, when we started our ICU early mobility program at UCSF, we did not have a dedicated PT and nor was anyone supporting me on the idea that there should, needed to be a dedicated PT in, in the ICU. Um, and we had to campaign pretty vigorously um, from a financial standpoint 
uh, and just a patient outcome standpoint to create that position in the ICU. And I still, I, I wrote an article about this that was published in 2013, I think, in the Physical Therapy Journal. Um, but I think Dale Needham has, has written different articles about it as well, that, you know, adding a PT or an OT salary to your ICU ends up improving your outcomes and helping patient leave the ICU so much faster that you end up saving so much money, you more than offset uh, the cost of the PT salary. So I still really encourage institutions everywhere to create a full-time PT OT position in the ICU. It's you know, that's all I do all day. Nurses have to do all these other things. My only job is to mobilize the patient. I don't have to give meds. I don't have to get someone ready for a procedure. I don't have to insert any tubes in anybody. I just need to mobilize them. And so why shouldn't you send me there to do that very important task um, and let me focus on it with, with my skill set instead of adding it to another list of chores for the nurse to do every day. I agree. It makes sense. There's definitely um, a case that has to be made to the, the people holding purse strings. But you know, the, the final thing I wonder about is um, often if we ask people to get a patient moving, and especially if they're still rather sick, um, and I guess in a lot of people's eyes, that means they're not like one foot out the door of the ICU. Um, often they're not maybe comfortable walking them around, maybe even standing them. So sometimes we'll just do in bed kinds of things. And maybe that means sitting on the edge, but often maybe not even that, you know, maybe it just means maybe they can do some, you know, extremity exercises, even just maybe passive range of motion kinds of things, where the nurse kind of moves them around a little, um, again, assuming that probably any movement is better than none, but how useful do you think this sort of thing is? Non-weight-bearing, um, very limited uh, activity in bed. Uh, do you think that it, it does a lot of the same things that you're you're doing with more kind of robust activity, or is it sort of limited in its use? Very limited in its in its use. Uh, and there's plenty of data to demonstrate that. So I'm part of a clinical practice guidelines group that's trying to write clinical practice guidelines for physical therapists working in the intensive care unit. And we're doing that through the American Physical Therapy Association. So we're reading all the literature that's out there on this topic to try to make these clinical practice guidelines. And over and over and over again, you read, oh, here we had our control group and here we had our early mobility group. And when we drill down into those studies and look at what the early mobility group is doing, they're often doing bed level stuff. In fact, that's by far and away the majority of what early mobility studies have been based on. And then we see a, more, a lack of a robust improvement in outcome for the patients who are receiving that intervention. So I think, and that's very true of in-bed cycling, in-bed e-stim, like the studies have been done. They have shown that those activities do not really move the needle on improving vent weaning and, and, and out of bed, uh, or, I mean, recovery without a lot of disability to a very large extent. So if you really are trying to help move this patient forward, and if you're really trying to improve your, you know, reduced length of stay in the ICU and reduced time on the ventilator, I, I think you just need to have the person up out of bed for, for all the reasons we just discussed. So do what you can, but to whatever extent possible, your real goal is to have them out of bed and, and actually bearing their own weight, right? We're not talking about, you know, picking them up in a Hoyer and putting them in the chair, although there maybe is some benefit there, but that's not really what we're talking about. No, and it's, again, and of course it has to be gauged to the capability of the patient, but it's essentially, it's a very time-sensitive topic, and this is the other problem. It's a time-sensitive intervention that we we aren't recognizing the time sensitivity as, as well as we should. So for every day that I can start mobilizing someone out of bed while they're still on the ventilator and so forth, I feel like I win back two or three days of rehab time later. What that means is my patient who is on the ventilator and day one, all they can tolerate is sitting on the edge of the bed and moving their legs around, sitting on the edge of the bed a couple of times a day. Oh, okay, great. It was very early in the game. They were still very sick, maybe quite delirious. We had to do a lot of work to give them the extra 
support on the ventilator while we were mobilizing them, but we did it and that was fine. And it was hard and it was messy and I was sweating getting it done, but it was an investment that pays off so much further down the road. And that's the, that's the disconnect is I don't think we see how much of an investment that initial struggling sweating time is because day two, I went in, family knew who I was, patient recognized me, patient felt excited that they were going to get up and move and feel like more alive again. And we got them from the edge of the bed to standing at the edge of the bed. They got really tired again and we put them back. Okay. The next day we went in and now they're suddenly like made leaps and bounds forward on the ventilator and we can actually extubate them. Now today they're going to get up once with me and walk down the hallway. And then once again with the occupational therapist later in the day and walk down the hallway. Now the patient's ready to leave the ICU. They go out to the floor and I've had this happen multiple times. They go out to the floor and they lie in bed and the floor nurses are thinking, oh, came from the ICU, very weak, uh, very fragile. I'm not going to move them. And my patient will say to the nurse, I need to get up and walk now. Could someone give me a walker? I need to go walk down the hall. And they will teach the nurse on the floor, I need to get up and walk down the hall. And then they get up and walk down the hall with very little assistance. Now that only was happening and the patient was only capable of walking down the hall once they got out of the ICU because of that early out of bed investment we made. It's yeah, just that the payoff later happens outside the ICU and the payoff is huge, but we haven't made, we haven't connected the dots well about that yet. It's interesting. You mentioned that when I was a ICU nurse uh, years ago, I had a patient who was a young woman who had um, newly diagnosed pulmonary hypertension and was in the ICU for a long time. And we would get up and walk around the unit every night. We discovered 17 laps around the ICU was a mile. And so she would actually track how far she walked. And it got to the point where we would get up at, you know, eight or nine o'clock at night after I was working night shift. Uh, and we'd go go walk around the hospital and I would take a, a, a pedometer and, and see how far we'd walked. And she would walk a mile or more every night at least. And then when she got quote better and got transferred to the floor, you know, she'd been in the ICU for months. So a lot of the nurses would go visit her and, uh, she, her big complaint was, I don't get to walk. Um, because you know, now I have a nurse that instead of having one-on-one -on -one nursing care, now I have a nurse that has four other patients and they're all afraid to let me get, just get up on my own. Uh, and so I walk to the end of the hallway and back twice a day and that's it. Otherwise I, I sit in this room and, um, it really sparked a conversation with the floor nursing staff and to develop this, uh, a sort of a better, better, uh, rehab model on the floor. Um, because they were just used to, yeah, like you said, patients come from the ICU, they're sick, they're weak, they can't get up and walk. Well, I, yeah, I think the, the, the big lessons here are, um, first of all, like you said, that the first time moving someone is always by far the hardest. So if it feels like it's almost impossible it, that you're doing the hard part now, so it's it's easier later, both for physical reasons and medical ones and practical ones and everyone's perspective and all that. But also, like it, there is a fine line here between, yes, scaling what you're doing to the patient's ability and to what seems possible, um, but also having like actual goals here and not just doing what's easy because th that's sort of a slippery slope and what's easiest is always going to be doing less. Um, but there are, you know, practical goals here like, oh, just kind of, you know, wiggling the patient around in bed or something is is just not going to be as good as if you you managed to do something that was much harder. Um, so, I mean, these are, these are concrete things we're achieving here. It's not just kind of aspirational, but... All right, we're definitely running a little long here. Um, Brian, any final words for this? No, I think uh, I think this has been really good. It's always good to get um, the perspective of other folks uh, in the ICU team, uh, aside from just providers. So thanks for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me. It was a wonderful conversation, and I, I do love the podcast. All right, everyone. Uh, we'll see you in a couple weeks. Remember, this is really just meant for you as general educational content. It's not specific medical advice. Please don't change what you're doing just based on this show. Uh, the ideas you've heard are also just those of us alone, not of our respective institutions. 